Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are in the last stretch of this long and incredibly challenging book of the Bible. We're in final things, the last part of chapter 16. And so far we've looked at the final things that Paul would say to this believing group of people in the city of Corinth. He addresses the needs of the poor, this collection that is being taken up to reach out into Jerusalem to meet the needs of the believers who were incredibly impoverished and in great distress as a result of the poverty that they faced. It was a great priority because this was an extension of their ability to to participate and cooperate in the Lord's work through Paul and through the ministry of others. Paul got into his itinerary, his plan to travel through Macedonia, and then eventually make his way back into Corinth to spend several months with them. His desire was to be with them, to to mend the strained relationship, and to help them through their spiritual struggles, which have been so detailed throughout this book of the Bible. He's currently in Ephesus with a great ministry opportunity, and he's experiencing a very productive time of ministry, not able or willing to cut that short in order to come to them, but he's going to send substitutes, specifically Timothy, and they have asked for Apollos to come, who was once their pastor. He is currently tied up doing other things. And so as we move into this last section, I was thinking about going through the remaining verses in one, but as I began to go through this, I was not able to do that. And we'll look at these two verses here in verses 13 and 14, uh, just some 20 odd words in the English. Uh, I think it's around 15 or 16 in the Greek. And as we look at this, we see Paul's heart for the edification of the church in Corinth which was in desperate need for edification and is in many respects a very general summarization of all that he has taught them and challenged them with in these previous 15 plus chapters. So these these two verses we're looking at today will detail his commands as a part of the final words that he would say to them and these commands are found specifically in verse 13 and 14. Be on the alert... Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Now why didn't Paul just say that and then say, I'll see you soon and talk through all of this? (laughs) Couldn't do that, right? Too important. The needs were so pressing and Paul will deal with these issues personally when he has the ability to get back with them and to talk in greater detail about all that he has outlined in these 15 plus chapters. So these verses contain five commands that are very clear, they're very straightforward, and in many ways they are directly connected back to what he has already told them, and again, are a bit of a summary of what it is he has taught them throughout this letter. So number one, or letter A rather, be alert. We see this in the very first part of 13. Be alert. This word is used over 20 times in the New Testament, and it means to watch, to be awake, and to be vigilant. And as I think about that challenge and the need to be alert, I think naturally of a security guard who is standing at a post... And he is supposed to be the protector of everybody that is in this room. He is to be the eyes for danger in this room. And I'm always brought back to the security guards that I see standing in a corner, looking at their phone, typing, 
emailing, Facebooking, and I think, that's not very secure, is it? Or you walk in and they're reading a book or they're watching TV and they don't look like they are alert. They're certainly not vigilant and they are not really watching. If you want to see somebody who is alert and vigilant, you look at a soldier at a post where the danger is real and imminent and they know that and nothing distracts them from what it is they are to be looking out after. Well, in most cases, this word is used in reference to Christians being spiritually awake and alert as opposed to being spiritually indifferent and listless. Think about that. Does our life reflect the security guard who is busy on his phone Or is our alertness more like a soldier manning a dangerous post? Well, it isn't very difficult to read through these 15 chapters and conclude that the church in Corinth was not at all alert to their spiritual condition or to the issues that plague them. In fact, they were oblivious for the most part. And if we were to go on and read in 2 Corinthians, they actually rejected much of the teaching that Paul was making them aware of and the need for change that was so clear. They just didn't understand it. They didn't accept it. And this is what Paul is really trying to get at the heart of the matter in is their lack of alertness in what's going on in their spiritual life. So Paul dealt extensively with their love for worldly wisdom and philosophy, which became a substitute for the authority of God's Word. We always need to be alert that other sources are not become, becoming an authority for us in place of the truth of God's Word. So the church at Corinth allowed that this lack of alertness allowed them to re-embrace their idolatrous past and their pagan lifestyle from which they were saved. And so as examples of this, as we have studied, they were fighting over who was the best spiritual leader and who their favorite was. They were caught up in sexual immorality to such a degree that we would act, we would be absolutely amazed that such a thing could have taken place. They were suing one another in the secular courts. They were self-indulgent with their pursuit over their own Christian freedom. This was most notably realized at the excesses taking place at the Lord's Supper. They were indifferent to the needs of the brethren. They misunderstood and misused spiritual gifts, which really led them back into a very obvious idolatrous practice. And worst of all, they exemplified in their lives what love was not supposed to look like, which led Paul to write, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Nowhere in Paul's mind did he say, you know, I want to write this passage that is going to be remembered through the ages and it's going to be eloquent and it's going to be articulate and it's going to be recited at weddings and it's going to be the feel-good passage of the year. That wasn't Paul's intent at all. Paul wrote that because this church lacked any semblance of love. And a big part of that was because they were not alert to the true need and the true depravity that was present in their spiritual condition. Now there are many, many things that we are to be alert on or over as it relates to our spirituality, but I just want to highlight a couple of them. First of all, we need to be alert for the enemy. 
Do we remember that there is a real and powerful enemy that is out there that is seeking to wreak havoc in our lives? He is very real. Who is this enemy that I speak of? Well, it is none other than Satan himself. First Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit or be alert, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, if you were a shepherd in the ancient world, you would stand alert because there were real, there were very real beasts who were out there that would take you down in a heartbeat to get to the sheep in the fold. You need to be alert because this enemy is very real and very powerful. To see this reality lived out, go no further than Genesis chapter 3 and reread the account of Eve in the garden when the serpent appears and what actually takes place in the heart and in the life of Eve. Satan will always distract us from our spiritual purposes leading us to instead focus on the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. He will always try to deceive us, leading us to not believe the truth of God's Word. God did not say that. Come on, you're exaggerating. He will always attempt to destroy us by causing us to doubt that God will do what He said He would do. Surely God is not going to kill you. All He's trying to do is deprive you of something that is very, very good. Well, this is exactly what Satan's game plan is. It hasn't changed. And he is shrewd. He is very clever. That's why he roars around... Like a like a he prowls around like a roaring lion, like a roaring lion, but he's dressed up in the garment of a sheep. Not not dangerous, not harmful, not going to hurt you in any way. But he is there, and he is very very real. Secondly, be alert for temptation. Now, Paul has already told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. But guess what? If you aren't alert for the temptation, that is all around you, that which our sinful nature is drawn to, you know, we're all, we aren't always going to be aware that we are in fact being tempted. We're going to be in a stupor saying, oh, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should I go and follow everything? It looks like a good thing. It's really shiny. It really looks interesting. I think I want to have some of that. And what ends up happening is we're being tempted and we aren't even aware that we're being tempted. Jesus would say this in Mark 14, 38, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we're dominated by our flesh, we can't even recognize the willingness of the spirit because it is lost in the sinful desires of the flesh. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. 
If we are spiritually apathetic, we will give in to temptation and we will struggle to find the provision that God has made available to us so that we can escape it. So there is this incredibly brief process where we are tempted and we have to make a choice. Do I follow it? Do I resist it? Do I entertain it? Do I reject it? And in these nanoseconds, God is making a way of escape available to us. But if we aren't alert that it is a temptation, we will dumbly follow that thing. And before we know it, we're going to be hooked. We won't even realize that we're being hooked until after the price is being paid. If we are spiritually apathetic... We won't recognize the temptation. So we are to be alert, which means to expect it, to be looking for it, as if it's around every single corner. Have you ever seen a movie, and I'm sure you have, where some police guy or some intruder is walking through a building and they are looking around every corner expecting the danger. They're expecting it to be there. This is how we are to live our lives spiritually. Expecting danger at every corner, not just waltzing through life as if everything is great and Satan is not even a reality. Thirdly, we are to be alert for false truth. Now these are It's a bit of a paradoxical saying. It's an oxymoron. Is there such a thing as false truth? Well, in God's world, no. Truth is truth. And anything that is not a part of God's truth is false. But my friend, out there, everywhere, is truth being presented to us as truth. But in reality, it isn't truth at all. It is false. We need to be alert for false truth. Truth, false teaching and false sources of truth are all around us and never more so than with the advent of the internet and I think a real disgrace to mankind, social media. Have you heard the term of an influencer before? Oh, well, he's an influencer and she's an influencer. Have you ever really studied to find out exactly what that means? Here's what it means technically. <laughs> People who have built a reputation for their knowledge and expertise on a specific topic. That's what the technical definition of an influencer is. But in the world of social media, an influencer is anyone that has a, has a large social media audience. They don't have to be an expert. They don't have to be knowledgeable. All they do is give advice ranging from fashion to cosmetic to political causes and They are deemed as experts or knowledgeable only because they have a half a million people who will follow them. Nothing they say is spiritually true, but people follow them like their lives depend upon the next post or the next tweet that this influencer is going to post on one of their social media accounts. And I cannot begin to imagine the numbers of people who have been led astray through these false sources of truth. We must always be alert to what is influencing us in the lives that we live. I noticed a very brief article just the other day in a very popular online news agency that was championing championing the 
position of an A-list actor. I know you've seen his movies. You would recognize his face from a mile away. And you could probably recite the movies that he has starred in, maybe even in chronological order. And he says, quote, I just think God is in nature. Whatever you believe God to be, that's what God is. Now, do you think he influences people into believing that God is something other than Yahweh, the God of the Bible, revealed through the one and only Son who died on the cross to pay for our sin? Do you think people believe this guy over the truth of the Bible? You better believe it. We don't think a thing about the stuff that pours into our lives that influences us, and yet we must be alert. We are often unaware of the trap that is set before us until we are actually ensnared and we go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in a bad place here. How am I going to get out? Peter would say this in 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people back in the days of the Old Testament, just as there also will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Even within the friendly, protected confines of the church, there is the possibility that false teachers will arise and secretly introduce their heresy. And so we must always be on the alert for false truth. In order to be alert, we must be proactive, intentionally choosing to be prepared. And I think one of the worst things churchgoers do is they believe everything the pastor says, hook, line, and sinker. They don't they don't research it. They don't challenge it. They don't question it. They just say, well, the pastor said it, so it must be true. Never, ever, ever believe everything you hear, regardless of the person who is saying it. Always go to Scripture and find verification of what is being purported as true. Paul would say in Ephesians 16, with all prayer, 16, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We must be alert. Now, secondly, in this list of commands that Paul gives, in addition to being alert, we are to let her be, be firm in the faith. That's what verse 13, the second part, verse B, verse 13b says, be firm in the faith. So the idea of being firm in the faith means to be stationary. Now the use of the word faith here is not a reference to being firm in our salvation, but rather being firm in the truth or the content of the gospel which brings us our salvation. If the message of the gospel, listen to this, if the message of the gospel or the truth of the gospel is able to be moved as opposed to being stationary, then our salvation is on very shaky ground. What Paul is doing here is he's making a connection to the centrality of the truth of the gospel message 
And our faith that is contained in the truth of that message as the truth is contained in God's Word as a whole. Now Paul makes this connection between salvation and the Gospel in Jude 1.3. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about what? About our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Do you see that? There's a connection between the singular truth of our salvation and the singular faith of all the saints. The salvation is, that is the truth that is contained in the salvation is the same truth that is contained in God's Word. The gospel message is rooted in the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, what was accomplished through Christ on the cross, and how we can personally know God by faith in this person and by faith in this work, and then how we are to live in light of this gift of salvation. Salvation and biblical doctrine are closely related. You really can't separate them, just like we cannot separate one side of the coin, salvation, and the other side of the coin, lordship. Two sides of the same coin. Salvation and biblical doctrine, in a similar way, are two sides of the same coin. Let me ask you this. Can you be saved if you disregard who God really is, who Jesus really is, what was really done on the cross, that that is the only means for our salvation? Can you be saved then if you dismiss the centrality of the gospel message? No, you cannot. Why? Because the truth of the gospel message is rooted in the truth of biblical doctrine from beginning to the end. To think that we can be saved and live our lives in direct opposition to the truth of who God is, the truth of who Jesus is, or that we can be saved and live indifferently to what God has said is simply a shrewd lie from the pit of hell that Satan has used to deceive countless numbers of people before. You can't get your ticket to heaven stamped by saying, oh, I believe in God, and oh, I believe in Jesus, and oh, I believe He died on the cross, and then go live your life any way you can, any way you want. You just It's not lordship. It's not two sides of the same coin. Neither can you be saved and say, well, God is not really Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's not really revealed to us as Jesus and the New Testament. There really isn't this divine trinity known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You really don't have to be saved by faith in Christ. There's something else you can do. Two sides of the same coin. Gospel message, centrality of doctrinal, of biblical doctrine, you can't be saved apart from it. We can't live our lives indifferently to it. Listen to what Paul says. This is an incredibly important passage of Scripture, and there's a lot that prefaces what is the main point in this. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14. As Paul was talking to the church at Ephesus about spiritual gifts and about the endowment of responsibility and roles within the church, he says, and he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers, for what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, 
To what? To the building up of mature, excuse me, to the building up of the body of Christ. For how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which is the embodiment of truth. Not that we all agree what is the the message of salvation. That would be ridiculous because after all, Paul is writing to the church. But until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to all that He is, to all that He has done, to all that He has said, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Notice, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every false source of truth, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Do you see the connection there? To stand firm in the faith To be unmovable is not doubting your salvation. It's not fearing you can lose your salvation. But it's being immovable on the same doctrinal statement that the Corinthian faith is rooted in and the doctrinal faith that Paul has outlined for them that is to be the result of this gift of salvation that they are now standing firm in. Make no mistake about it. What we believe will determine what we do. And because we believe in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, we must stand stationary in the truth of who He is and what He has done and what He says. If we don't remain firm in what He says, then our faith is on shaky ground. We cannot stand firm in God's truth if there's questions about the authenticity or authoritativeness in Jesus' teaching. We just can't do it. So to not remain firm in who He is and what He has done and what He has said, to not do this is to not stand firm in the faith And this is exactly what the Corinthians are so guilty of. They have embraced worldly wisdom and worldly philosophy. They've become an authority to themselves. They drifted back into idolatry, into sexual immorality. Their church did not reflect the truth of God. It looked just like any other pagan idol worship service that the city was filled with. Be firm in the faith. Thirdly, letter C, be mature. Paul says specifically here, act like men. Now this call to act like men is directly related to what Paul has already said to the Corinthians in regard to their maturity. And let's go back and revisit some of these things that Paul said to them. And I am positive that when they heard this, they were like, ooh, I don't like this. I don't like what you're saying. This does not make me feel good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Why? For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you were not able. You big spiritual baby, that's what he's saying to him. No, he didn't say it like that, but that's really what he's saying. 
You are immature in the faith. He will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 13 and 11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Paul is saying, stop being and acting and thinking like children. They thought they were the who's who. They thought they were the it's it. And they were living their lives high on the hog of their own ideas about what truth was. And Paul says you're thinking and acting like children. More recently, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The Corinthians were anything but mature adults. This is why they fought. This is why they argued. This is why they sued one another. This is why they ran out and did whatever they wanted. This was because they disregarded the source of their spiritual growth for something else. What is the source for our spiritual growth? Isn't it the Word of God? When we substitute the authoritative source of our spiritual growth for something else, what man might think, what man might say, what I think, what I want, what an influencer might say, if that is what we do, then we are not going to grow in the truth of God's Word. Our spiritual maturity is not the result of our getting old in the faith. Let me say that another way. If you were saved at 20 and now you're 80, it doesn't mean that you're mature in your faith just because you've been a Christian for 60 years. It doesn't mean that at all. Being mature in your faith is not because you've grown old as a Christian. Being mature in your faith is the result of being transformed by the faith. It's being transformed by the source of our spiritual growth. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We need transformation. The real question is, do we really desire to be transformed? Now, I'll be very honest with you. Transformation is not a fun process. Transformation often involves trials and tribulation. It involves difficulty and hardship. It's the loving pruning shears of God to remove worldly things from us. Have you ever pruned something out in your yard or in your garden and it begins to emit a milky sap substance? Well, that's that plant bleeding. It didn't like that, but it's going to have to try to heal itself. This is what happens to us. God prunes us and we say, Alex, I don't like that. I don't want it to be any part of this. But we need transformation. The truth of God's Word is the only source of our true spiritual transformation. Any other source, any source other than the truth of God's Word, will instead be rooted in worldly philosophy or worldly wisdom. There's only two options. It's either going to be, we're going to be changed by the truth of God's Word, or we're going to be changed by something else. When we are saved, we are instantly changed spiritually. But that change is incomplete. That is why there is this ongoing process of sanctification. It's being made holy through our willing death on our own cross, where we make Him Lord, we die to ourselves, 
to become more like Him. When we're saved, we are instantly changed spiritually, but it's incomplete. If God's Word doesn't change how we think and how we feel about virtually every component of our life, our spiritual growth is greatly diminished. Every part of my life needs to be transformed by God's Word? Yep. All of it? Yep. (laughs) The basic questions of life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going? What are my values? What are my priorities? What is it that's going to guide and dictate the course of my life? All of those answers, excuse me, all of those questions are answered in Scripture through God's Word. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of a son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Let me ask you a different question in the light of that verse. Before you were a Christian, before you were saved, what part of your life looked exactly like the life of Christ? (laughs) Not a bit. Not a shred. Nothing. Every part of our life needs to be transformed. And so God calls us to be mature. Fourthly, verse 13 continues, be strong. To be strong is a call to possess inner strength, strength that is the result of spiritual growth. There's not a coincidence in the, in the order that these things are here, but our strength is derived from our spiritual growth. Now the really interesting thing about this verb in the Greek is that this verb is in the passive voice, and what that means is to be strengthened. To say that a different way, we don't have the capacity to strengthen ourselves spiritually, that strengthening is done to us by an outside force. Well, what is the outside force that strengthens us? It is God. It is God working in us through the transformative work of His Word, giving us the ability to withstand the difficulties and challenges of life that really aren't a reflection of my own inner strength. It's Him in me. It's not me. So to be strengthened means we can't strengthen ourselves. We are made strong by the Lord. We cannot make ourselves strong. We are simply made strong by God as He works in our lives, as we submit to Him and commit ourselves to Him. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That verse contains a trifecta of God's strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Whose strength? His strength. His strength of His might. This is how we are made strong. It is God's work in us. The only spiritual strength we can possess is that which comes directly from the Lord. And strength from the Lord only comes by walking with Him, by obeying Him, and by living in dependency upon Him. Now, 
It's very easy for us, especially the longer we are in the faith, it's very easy for us to overestimate our own strength. We pull up our belt like we're the big man on campus and say, well, I can handle it all. I can go anywhere. I can be a, I can be confronted with just about anything and I'm going to stand strong because I've been a Christian a long time. Isn't that right? Isn't that what many people think? And you know what? We are terribly, terribly Wrong. We must never overestimate our own spiritual strength because when we do, the words of 1 Corinthians 10 ought to come back as Paul has already said, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Do we need to be strengthened? Yeah. Do we need to be transformed? Yeah. Do we want to be strengthened? How do we achieve this strengthening? It's simply through denial of self and submission to God's Word. You know, there was a time in Paul's life, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that because of the revelations that God was giving to him, think about this, Paul the former persecutor was getting these numerous revelations from God where he's hearing directly from God, where God is speaking to Paul, His eternal Word. And Paul was struggling with that, I think, in his flesh. And so in this process in Paul's life, in order to keep him from boasting in himself, in order to keep him from overestimating his own strength, God gave to him, what? A thorn in the flesh. And this thorn in the flesh was something that would not escape Paul as a means by God to keep him humble before the Lord. And we don't know what it is. We speculate on what it is. And here's Paul's response to this nagging thorn in the flesh. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Well, Paul says, well, my, excuse me, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power, is perfected in your weakness. Oh, when Paul realized that, Paul says, well, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know what that means? That if we feel strong in ourselves, we don't need the strength of God. We don't desire the strength of God. We're going to figuratively storm the gates of hell on our own, in our own strength, and God's going to go, man, that's not going to go well for you, my friend. It's just not going to work. We must never overestimate our own strength, but we must always live in dependency upon the strength of the Lord, and that is exactly what Paul did. Paul would say, I am weak, I am feeble, I am incapable, and I depend upon you. And as a result of that, as a result of the strength that God gave to Paul, Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul would say, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Paul was totally dependent. Paul was strong, but not in himself. He was strong in the strength of God's might. Lastly, letter E, be loving. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. What the Corinthians needed most was to be loving. Chapter 13, the great love chapter was written out of a great need to show them what love really is, what they had no clue what love was really about. Like strength, 
The capacity to love comes from God, not from self-determination or from self-effort. Love is the fruit or the byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And our love is made possible by our ongoing transformation through the Word of God. In ourselves, we have the capacity to love a little. But in and through God's love, we have the capacity to love a lot. Now, one of the more difficult things we are ever called to do is to love one another. You know, there's select people in our lives that we really love, our spouses and our children and our uh, most of our close family. You know, there's just a there's a bond there. There's a connection there. But for the rest of us, people in the church, you know, kind of hard to love that fellow over there. He's not very lovable by my own estimation. Really challenges my ability to love. That's our own capacity. But through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we have the capacity to love more like the way God loves rather than the way we are naturally designed to love. This is why Peter would say in chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, the thing that fractures relationships within the church so much is you did or you didn't do, you said or you didn't say, I wanted but you didn't, whatever it might be. But when we are fervent in love, when we're being transformed by God's love, our capacity to love one another and forgive one another is just off the chart. Way different from what you and I possess in ourselves. So these last commands that Paul gives to the church at Corinth, be alert, be firm in the faith, be mature, be strong in the Lord, and be loving. Would we be faithful to listen to these words today? And to do so would be to let God continue to transform us through the only source of our truth, and that is God's Word. Let's pray together.